0: The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of
1: Reuters News. Did central banks mess up their fight against inflation? In this exchange, I sit down with Paul Donovan, chief economist at UBS Global Wealth Management, to talk about rising consumer prices, interest rates, China, and much more. Welcome to The Exchange, a podcast by Reuters Breaking View. I'm Francesco Guerrera, Global Economics Editor. Today I'm in London to talk to Paul Donovan, Chief Economist at UBS Global Wealth Management. He rates the performance of the Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank during the inflation crisis of the past two years, looks at China's reopening after the Covid lockdowns, and explains why, in his view, central bankers just talk too much. Paul, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for the opportunity. Um, Let's start from the uh, most important topic at the moment. Um, How do you rate central banks' handling of inflation in interest rates over the past, say, uh, year or so? Maybe let's start with the Fed.
0: Well, I think generally what we've got to recognize is uh, central banks have have actually dealt with inflation relatively well. Mm -hmm. Now, that might sound surprising when we've had such a long period of high inflation, but... What we've really had are these three uh, separate inflation waves, the transitory inflation uh, of 2021, which was transitory. I mean, the the, the Fed was quite right about this. It did come down. Mm -hmm. uh, But that was then immediately followed by the effects of the war in Europe. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, has has elevated energy prices and created a second inflation wave. And then this final inflation wave, which is very much profit-led, So I think that central banks were right in their approach back in 2021 to say, look, no need to panic. This isn't going to last because they were quite right. The Fed in particular Mm. has presided over a simple collapse in durable goods price inflation in 2022. I mean, it's an astonishing collapse from an all-time record high Mm -hmm. to deflation in less than 10 months. I mean, it's absolutely astonishing.
1: So that was temporary. It that was it. Went, went up and, up, and, down went up and came down yeah. again.
0: Mm-hmm. But then, of course, they were they were rather blindsided, as weren't we all, uh, by the war in Ukraine. Um, and then I think the the final stage, where I would be more critical, particularly of, of the Fed and the ECB, is that as we've moved into a profit led inflation cycle, which is very unusual and doesn't tend to last very long, mm-hmm. what we have seen is a rather incoherent explanation. Mm-hmm of how policy is supposed to deal with that. So you've got Powell saying, well, inflation's high, so we're going to hike, but he's not explaining how those rate hikes might squeeze profit margins, force companies to uh, reduce their prices and and
1: accept slightly less profit. And and that, I think, is the key problem. And so let's unpack, because Mm. you've been one of the economists who's really identified and talked about Mm. this profit-led part Mm. of the inflationary cycle let's explain a little bit how you see that. So how, how does it work in profit-led inflation?
0: So, of course, companies make profits all the time, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, that's that's what normally happens. What, what we have, though, is, simplistically, there are two sorts of companies in the world. There are companies that are selling very sort of standardized products, companies where you don't have uh, a lot of repeat business, where you know, the customer doesn't come back. Those companies tend to have strong pricing power all of the time. Yeah. So demand up, prices up, demand down, prices down. That's how it works. Mm-hmm. So think, if I'm, if I'm trying to sell you a used car, mm-hmm. I never want to see you again once I've sold you the car. Yep. So I am going to try and get as much money out of you as I can when I sell you the car because I don't care what you think about me afterwards. Yep. But then you've got this second group of companies that have far weaker pricing power normally because they need customers to come back to them. Yeah. They've got a strong brand. It's it's all very important to them. So supermarkets are a good example of this. Mm -hmm. These companies tend not to raise prices Mm -hmm. um, uh, aggressively because the risk is that they lose their customers and then it's very, very difficult to get them to come back again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, what has happened in the last six to nine months is this second group of companies Mm -hmm. have been able to increase their profit margin, um, and pass on price increases that are more than their cost increases. And the way that this has happened is demand until recently has generally been quite strong in most major economies, uh, because it's difficult to pass on price increases if demand isn't strong. And then secondly, they've had a story to tell. Mm -hmm. That's what we call narrative (laughs) economics. So they go out and they say, right, well, you know, the war in Ukraine, terrible thing, Price of wheat is up 20%, so we've got to raise the price of bread by 15 20%. And that's what's happened in Europe. Yeah. And consumers believe that story and they yeah. say, oh, yes, that's, that's a fair price increase. Right. Whereas economists say, what's the price of wheat got to do with the price of bread? Right. Right. Because you know, bread is 10% wheat, 70% labor, the labor costs are very low. Why aren't you cutting prices? Right. But because you can convince the customer... The price increase is fair, the customer doesn't leave you, and so you expand the margin. So that's what we've been seeing, these specific sectors where um, margin expansion has been coming through because customers have been persuaded right. that it's a fair price increase, when in actual fact it's not.
1: Even for companies that normally wouldn't have pricing power, though, you're saying the yes. companies that normally wouldn't have to go with demand, so to speak, would, yeah. uh, we're able to push through pricing.
0: Because they've they've been able to sell this story. Now, this tends not, not to last very long. Firstly, as demand weakens, it becomes more difficult to do this. Mm. Um, and secondly, customers suddenly say, actually, I don't think that's fair. Right. So think about the windfall profit taxes that we've been seeing on energy companies. Yeah. That's because people are saying, hold on, yes, we know there's a war on, but your profit margin expansion is huge and you know this is more than just raising the price of gas. You're, you're Making a lot of money off of this, uh, Norway recently. This was very interesting. The Norwegian supermarkets raised prices, mm-hmm. um, and there was outcry, absolute outcry. Really? And they suddenly decide, oh, actually, we didn't need those price increases after all. We'll take them back down again. Um, and that's a sort of demonstrating this this potential resistance to price increases actually leads to a, a fairly quick reversal, uh, particularly for this group of companies that don't traditionally have pricing power. You know, they've taken advantage of the situation to increase pricing power, but it doesn't last forever.
1: Nevertheless, it mm. had a big impact on inflation. It's almost yep. like a, a second wave or a third wave of inflation. Yep. And you were saying that the central banks have had difficulty in controlling it, or, or at least in communicating how to control it.
0: I think that this has been the problem. So um, Powell, who, let us remember, is not an economist, mm-hmm. has been talking about, well, we need to see the labor markets uh, cooling off. Well, no you don't. Um, the labor market isn't behind this inflation. And so he's sort of doing economics 101, I'm not actually sure he studied economics 101, but he's doing basic economics and saying right, well the oh, labor markets cause inflation and normally they do, mm-hmm. labor markets cause inflation so therefore inflation's up and must weaken the labor market. But that's not what's going on. And what I think would have helped, and, and what um, uh, Fed Vice Chair Brainard has talked about, is the profit margin story. Uh-huh. So we have heard members of the Fed talking about this, but they're not talking loudly enough about this. And I think that the the importance of this is that if the Fed is saying, actually, it's profit margins that are driving this, yeah. then that resistance from the consumer, the consumer saying, no, that's not a fair price increase, I'm not paying that, would suddenly become a lot stronger. And you know, as we saw in Norway, as we've seen with the... Um, uh, energy companies you 'd then start to see that resistance spilling over into changing pricing strategies by corporates
1: so what should have the Fed done in terms of for the, for this part of profit-led inflation.
0: So I think in the third phase, um, I mean, there is an argument for raising rates, absolutely, because right. that helps with Ooh. the demand slowdown, and we did need to see a demand slowdown to help squeeze the margins. Mm-hmm. But I think the Fed should have been more clear in its rhetoric about what it was doing, right. rather than this very old-fashioned, simplistic, you know, I must weaken the labour market, which isn't the solution. And if they'd have done that, they could have done fewer rate hikes. So I think the risk is that we end up actually with more rate hikes than are needed. And the Fed will probably have to reverse itself fairly quickly. Because if I look at the three waves of inflation, the transitory inflation is over. The transitory inflation is now deflation. The energy prices, not much central banks can do about those, but they are more or less neutral to slightly negative at the moment in terms of their inflation impact. And as the profit margin uh, story reverses and we start to see weaker pricing power re-established, then the inflation rate will come down a lot more rapidly than it would if it was the more traditional wage-led inflation, which is not what we've got. So I think that you know, the risk is that by failing to highlight the profit-led nature of inflation, the Fed is over-tightening. Um, and when the turn comes, it will be more abrupt than the Fed thinks, which then means that the Fed would have to go into an easing scenario. Mm-hmm.
1: So it's like one of those well-made thriller movies where all of a sudden they con- the police is concentrating on the wrong villain. They yes. were looking at the wrong target, and the narrative, therefore, was skewed towards that target. But in terms of policy action, you think if they had focused on the right target, they would have hiked less or s- more slowly?
0: I think they would have hiked more slowly. And I think that's the other thing. That the, I mean, the speed of the hikes is, is astounding. Um, mm. And the the reason that that makes me nervous mm. is that the quality of economic data in the U.S. and elsewhere mm-hmm. has deteriorated substantially. Right. Um, uh, you know, non farm payrolls, for example, arguably the most important statistic in the markets, mm. um, is based off a survey where the survey response rate has gone from seventy percent. Four years ago to 45% now. Mm-hmm. A majority of the non-farm payrolls calculation is guesswork. Right, And so you've got a lot more volatility in terms of revisions to data yeah. and yet the Fed is, is saying, well, you know, this is, we're hiking very rapidly because the data is strong. And it's, well, is the data strong or are we going to revise this away? And a good case in point, back in June last year when the Fed made its, in my view, serious policy errors in tearing up forward guidance and emphasizing consumer price inflation as a target, which mm-hmm. both of which were, were disastrous.
1: For again, is when the bank tells the market what they're going to do next, essentially. Exactly.
0: Like, so display. so yeah. yeah, yeah. The, so the, the the Fed had been saying, look, yeah. we're going to raise rates half a percentage point, half a percentage point, trust us half a percentage point. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, it's three quarters. <laughs> and the result is, and, and this was pointed out at the time to Powell mm-hmm. uh, by members of the FOMC, the result is the market now doesn't believe a word Powell says. Right. But Part of the reason why Powell was saying that, he was saying, well, you know, we're, we're doing this because inflation expectations are high mm-hmm. in the University of Michigan consumer sentiment data. Yeah. Um, and this is a survey which you know, asks people where they think inflation is going. The problem with that, that Powell saying, well, inflation expectations are high, so we felt we had to tear up years of, of trust building and forward guidance and abandon this policy recklessly. Two weeks later, the University of Michigan came out and revised the data down yeah. and said, no, inflation expectations aren't that high after all. Terribly sorry, they're a lot lower. And so the whole premise of Powell's policy was torn up by data revision. So I think the, the, the speed... Of of, data, of rate tightening, and the failure to pause and reflect the failure to see what 's happening with revisions to data has been very problematic mm-hmm. um, and' it 's not been disastrous, but mm. there's been a, a, a quite sort of reckless air around central bank policy over the last twelve months I would mm. say
1: mm. do you say do you see the same pattern in the European Central Bank policy-making, or is there different trends there, different
0: aspects? So there are similarities in um, the ECB, but I think there are problems in the ECB. Um, so we have, I think, two specific problems uh, for the ECB. The first is that this is a 22-person decision-making body, which meets for two hours a month. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, so this is, this is not an easy body to to control. And then I think the second issue is Lagarde. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I think Powell is, is not, frankly, the best choice for Fed chair. Mm-hmm. But um, traditionally, the Fed chair has had an awful lot of authority in a smaller committee. Mm. The issue, I think, with Lagarde is... So we're talking about
1: Christine Lagarde, the president of the ECB, yeah. The,
0: the president of the ECB yeah. is um, Lagarde's authority is, is very, very little indeed. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, She's not an economist by training. Uh, all of her predecessors were very good economists. Yep. Um, so it's very difficult for her to provide economic leadership to this organization. Mm-hmm. And so what we have had, to be a little bit simplistic, is one faction, sort of the German faction, saying, you know, we want higher rates, and the yep. other faction, sort of the Italian faction, saying, well, we, we mustn't stop buying bonds. Yep. And the result is they've done both. So yep. they're raising rates, but they've not yet, they will, but they've not yet scaled back quantitative policy or the bond-buying yep. program. And you know, so you've had this rather confused element and it's it almost seems like once they've made a decision on policy, it's very, very difficult to change that decision because in the absence of leadership and with this sort of chaotic, factionalized and unwieldy large decision-making body, very, very difficult to then uh, say, actually, you know what, why don't we pause and think? Mm-hmm. Why don't we stop with the rate hikes and perhaps start tightening quantitative policy. Yet that that sort of decision-making process doesn't seem to be there, and it just sort of blunders on on autopilot, yeah. which is why I think the ECB will continue raising rates into the second quarter of this year, um, whereas the Federal Reserve, I think, is more likely to stop. It will stop at perhaps too high a level, but yeah. it will stop uh, late first quarter early second quarter, and the ECB probably carries on.
1: And the... Just to explain, mm. I mean, if you hike rates while you're still buying bonds, the two mm. policies are at odds with each other. That's that's the idea, right? I mean, they are. I mean
0: they're not entirely at odds, right. but the but the the messaging is less than clear, let's put it that way. Mm. Um, you know, what are you trying to signal with this policy? It's, it's mm. not immediately apparent.
1: They both both the Fed and ECB are facing the fact and the perhaps the political pressure and the public pressure, the fact that the inflation is way, way above their 2% targets. Yes. So you, you, don't, you, don't you have any sympathy with their um, uh, I, with their efforts to fight inflation almost at all costs?
0: So I, I absolutely, I think they should be tightening policy. Right. Um, you know, policy should not have stayed where it was in 2020, 2021. That was you know, an emergency policy. Mm-hmm. Clearly, there should be policy tightening. But I think... Um, the the problem has been that they have not been clear about the causes of inflation. Right. They've not been clear about what they can influence with inflation. Yeah. You know, the ECB cannot bring down the price of natural gas in Europe. Right. It can't. Right. I mean, unless it entirely crashes the economy and, and demand goes to zero, which of course it's not going to do. So there is a limit to what central banks can do. I think there is perhaps a, a, a to be fair a a history over the last twenty thirty years. Uh, where central banks have been sort of elevated to this superhuman type status. Yeah. Central banks can solve everything. Well, they can't. Um, central banks can do a great deal to control certain aspects of inflation. Excess demand-led inflation, uh, credit bubbles they can deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, can, they can use their policy to try and smooth the economic cycle. You know, all of that works, but they can't control you know, what we would call an act of God, like you know, a war. Um, they can't control a, a, a pandemic. And given the policies that were put in place in the pandemic, there was very little that they could do subsequently to control the transitory inflation of 2021. There was right. it, it was beyond their control. It was just one of those things that would disappear. Right. And with a bit of patience, it would have gone away and did go away. So I think that it's fair to say central banks should be tightening but I think that they have not done a, a sufficiently good job of explaining the causes of inflation, um, You know, what is going to be lasting, what is not going to be lasting. And what we haven't had either really from the Fed or the ECB is a philosophical explanation of what it is they think interest rate hikes are going to do. Right. We right. know they're saying raise rates to lower inflation, but how? Yeah. What is the process? And that's not being explained by the major central banks. And that I think is troubling.
1: So that's ironic because you said they have uh, difficulties explaining what they're doing but mm. they they can never stop talking right so they they've been a very communicative bunch uh, particularly Christine Lagarde so in your very mm. amusing daily audio comments which also appear mm. in, in an email you often take Miss mm. Lagarde to task about her um, you know uh, vociferous uh, interventions why
0: so the, this I think is uh, again, it's it's an illustration perhaps of Lagarde's background as a, as a politician and, mm. and as a lawyer, not as an economist and as a central banker. When we are talking about central bank speak, normally what happens is the head of the central bank will speak once or twice a month. Right. So you'll speak when you're changing policy to explain it, and right. then if there's been something in the data flow which is shifting your opinion, right. then you will come out and explain that. And what that means is When you're speaking once or twice a month, these comments attract a lot of attention. They are treated with respect. They are analyzed for what they are saying. And they're they're treated as uh, important signals as to what the thinking of the central bank is. Mm. Um, Now, those comments vary in quality. So if I compare... Uh, for example, former Fed Chair uh, Bernanke's comments with current Fed Chair Powell's comments, there's a big difference in quality. Mm-hmm. Let's just Fine. leave it yeah. at that. Yeah. Um, the problem with Lagarde is Lagarde is, Lagarde is constantly speaking. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's as if Lagarde is on, on a political campaign trail. And so she's making remarks when nothing has changed. Right. She's uh, uh, you know, making comments when you know, th- we've had no data out at all, when there's no shift in policy decisions, and the result is that the markets have just stopped paying any attention. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's the central banker who cried wolf. Um, right. You know, this this constant. Um, you know, we're going to raise rates, believe me. And she's saying that day after day after day. And the market's, oh, we don't care. We're not listening to this again. And so I think that's been part of the problem. There have also been an extraordinary number of um, miscommunications from Lagarde where what has happened is Lagarde has come out and spoken. And then 24 hours later, the chief economist of the ECB, uh, Lane, comes out and says what the president meant to say was and corrects the impression. And so that, of course, has also... Um, debased the quality of the comments as far as the markets are concerned. So I think that it's not that you you need to to maintain a total area of mysterious um, silence from a central bank, but say something when something needs to be said and otherwise keep quiet. Mm -hmm. It's a a fairly good philosophy. Um, And I think with Lagarde, we we just don't have that. There's so much communication um, and of of such a, a varied quality the markets just have stopped paying attention yeah
1: so there's an inflationary effect to central banks uh, uh central bank speak essentially.
0: absolutely right. yes it's it's like anything else if if you, if you, you increase appreciate. the
1: supply the value goes down <laughs> right um i want to shift the focus slightly to china there's a mm. lot of uh, well there's a lot of debate within the economic uh, world mm. about whether the sudden reopening of china after the the COVID lockdowns would be inflationary or disinflationary for mm. the world economy how do you how do you see it so I think it, it doesn't actually make that much difference. It's it's worthwhile
0: remembering the Chinese economy, I mean, it matters a lot to, to companies. Mm. Um, China's domestic demand doesn't matter that much to the rest of the world mm-hmm. um, because a lot of the domestic demand is very, very um, inward-looking. Right. So a couple of points, I think, about the reopening. The first is that... Um, just changing the regulations doesn't change anything. Mm. Um, it's fear mm-hmm. that drives the economic consequences of the pandemic. That's always been the case. Yeah. So have fear levels started to come down in China? Now, the evidence is that they are coming down, but they're not collapsing. They're not, you know, we're yeah. not at pre-pandemic levels sure. because obviously you know, we've had another wave. There's been a lot of hospitalizations. Unfortunately, the death rate has gone up. So the fear level has been slower to come down, but it has come down. Yeah. So that means that the domestic consumption is picking up. The zero COVID restrictions, though, were not really limiting China's supply. Mm -hmm. Um, So the manufacturing sector was not disrupted in the way that it was during the initial lockdowns. Um, And at the same time... uh, We've already discussed the, the, the transitory inflation yeah. uh, collapsing. Well, one of the reasons for that collapse is people are not demanding televisions and washing machines yeah. and furniture in the way that they were in 21 and early 22. So global demand has come down. Mm-hmm. And so effectively, we've got excess supply for a lot of the stuff that China is producing. So the question now is, as China ends its zero COVID policy, what is going to happen in terms of domestic demand? Well, as the fear level comes down, particularly as we Mm. get into the second quarter, domestic demand should improve. Um, It will be mainly middle-income families that are spending. The lower-income families uh, don't have the resources to spend. Um, And the middle-income families, the question is, are they going to be buying goods or are they going to be spending on services? Mm. And that's important because if they're buying goods, then there is potentially demand for commodities, demand for raw materials, and, Mm -hmm. and that is... Not necessarily inflationary, but it probably limits the, the disinflation forces that exist there. But actually, I think there's more likely to be a focus on services, yeah. on experiences, uh, restaurants, eating out. From a global inflation perspective, there is no difference between uh, somebody having a meal at home and somebody having a meal in a restaurant. I mean, effectively, there's no difference in terms of global uh, demand for commodities, etc.
1: Travelling? Um, travelling? If they go on holiday more, is that...
0: Isn't that so the, the, the travelling issue, again, the question here is uh, where do they go travelling? And, and this is going to be one of the very interesting things to see. So um, firstly, um, uh, there is a question of is it possible to go travelling internationally? Right. Because um, at the moment it's still very difficult because you're finding it difficult to get um, passports, to get visas because no one's been travelling for you know, three years. So uh, there's, a, there's a difficulty in uh, getting the necessary legal documentation. Yeah. There is also an interesting question about whether the Chinese government wishes to encourage mm. the Chinese mm. to travel abroad. Mm. Um, with some of the political tensions that we've got at the moment with the United States, uh, with uh, Japan, for yeah. example, yeah. Um, is the Chinese government going to be happy to see Chinese tourists going to Japan when there's a dispute over uh, Japan banning the sale of, of chip-making equipment yeah, to China yeah, yeah. or you know the balloon sure, issue sure. with the United States. So you could see here potentially a desire by the Chinese authorities to, say, travel all you like but do so internally.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, so I think that the idea that... Um, you know, Chinese tourists will be you know, swarming along the Champs-Élysées or uh, you know, visiting Rapongi or, or yep. whatever in the way that they were mm-hmm. pre-pandemic. I would be quite a lot more cautious about that, certainly for this year. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it, although we will see an improvement in international travel, which remains very weak at the moment, yep. it's not going to be an explosive boom in the next quarter or two. Mm-hmm. Um, I would be more cautious than that at this stage.
1: While at the same time, China will resume or, or keep uh, the disinflationary uh, role they've had in the world economy through globalization, though. So they will still produce, you said there's mm. been no supply bottlenecks, so they'll still produce these goods at lower that, prices. And
0: yes, prices. I mean, there's a, there has uh, been a debate about just how disinflationary or inflationary globalization is. I actually think globalization has been mildly inflationary. Because oh, really? okay. what you end up with is relative price changes okay. that China. Um, increases the supply of labor-intensive goods, which is disinflationary, but it increases its demand for commodities. It's a very inefficient consumer of commodities. Global aggregate demand increases as China's living standard rises, which Mm -hmm. of course is a good thing, Mm -hmm. but that means you actually get a relative price change, commodities up, manufactured product down. As we look ahead, um, I think if the consumer in China uh, does resume spending uh, in services in particular, then there will be less need for infrastructure spending in China to stimulate the economy. That means obviously services, less commodity intensive, infrastructure, more commodity intensive. So if you're spending in restaurants rather than building roads, global steel prices don't get a boost from that pattern of demand. So the pattern of demand plays out as I expect. That's not especially inflationary uh, in the global sense. The durable goods prices I think continue to decline that is more about demand yeah. weakness yeah. against a backdrop of record supply sure. remember for the last uh, 2 years we've had record global manufacturing output yeah. Yeah. uh beating the record every year but now we're seeing this very sharp drop in demand that's that's creating the imbalance but it's more about the weakness of us european uk consumers to go out and purchase more goods that's where the the issue is going to come from i think in disinflation
1: Paul, thank you so much for your time and insights. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Oliver Tashlish in London. Subscribe to The Exchange and assist the podcast, The Views Room, on Megaphone, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Catch up with our latest views and much more on BreakingViews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at BreakingViews.